Um, we finished the um, series that we've been doing on contemplative practice and prayer last Sunday, and uh, that was a barn burner. Really enjoyed that one. Um, wanted to do something today because um, I've gotten repeated questions, and I suppose the way to introduce this is, how weird is the world getting for you? All right. So it just seems like, especially in the last two years since the pandemic and all, um, things have really accelerated and the world seems to be destabilizing by the minute. And as the, the stranger it gets, the weirder it gets, the scarier it gets. And there's just no way around that. And so as the world gets scarier, people are looking for certainty, looking for answers. And one of the places that they go is to end times prophecy. So I've been getting questions about that about end times and, and uh, you know, prophetic utterances and all this sort of thing, to try to find out what is it that is coming? Can we know what is coming? How do we deal with what is coming? And so are we really heading into the end time sequence? I think a couple of years ago, um, pastors were surveyed across the United States, and about 56% thought that we were heading into the end times. Okay, what does that even mean to be heading into the end times? So I wanted to talk about that is just briefly today, hopefully briefly. Um, but it's a huge subject, as you can imagine, and we're not going to get down into the weeds because that's not the way that I like to deal with prophetic and apocalyptic literature. But to pull back and take a 30,000-foot view, what is it overall that is going on in these books, in these passages, in the scripture and what is it we're really dealing with when we talk about an end time sequence? What does that even mean? And John, if you could cue the rain as well, that would also be good. I'm hearing thunder in the background. That reminded me of the Truman Show. Cue the sun, right? Cue the rain. Cue the thunder. Okay, so what is this end time sequence that we're talking about anyway? You know, first of all, you've got to know that everything, everything about end times, really everything about Christianity is controversial. There is going to be people on all sides of every argument. So I'm going to try to steer down the middle and say, okay, what is this end time sequence we're talking about? First of all, it has to take place within a theological system called dispensationalism. Okay, great. What does that even mean? You know, dispensationalism, first of all, you should know, has only really been brought to a formal kind of system since the 1830s. And it was sort of the brainchild of, of one Scottish, Scottish um, pastor and, and scholar by the name of John uh, Darby, and uh, John Shelby Darby, I think. And so it's relatively recent, but the idea between, behind dispensationalism is that God doesn't work uniformly with humankind throughout history. God works in epochs, eras, or dispensations and has different rules and different ways of dealing with humanity during those time periods. And so usually, classically, there are seven different dispensations across human history. And they would be like before and after the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. God dealt one way with them before and another way with them after. Before and after the flood and Noah, God dealt with humankind one way before, another way after. Before and after the, mo the giving of the Mosaic Law, Okay, one way before, one way after, before and after the, the cross, of course. So before the cross, we're dealing with Judaism and Israel. After the cross is what's known typically as the church age. And so in each one of those dispensations, God is working differently with humankind in terms of salvation, in terms of his way of, of uh, bringing us to himself and so on and so forth. 
Secondly, if you're a dispensationalist, if they're going to look at these different epochs or eras, they need to look at Scripture absolutely literally. So a dispensationalist is going to be looking at Scripture literally from that point of view. And so from their point of view, if there is any promise that was made to Israel that was not literally fulfilled in the generation to which it was uttered, in their opinion, reading the scriptures literally, then they're going to relegate that to something that is as yet unfulfilled and is looking out, we're looking out into the future now for the fulfillment of those promises or those prophecies. Now, Jews didn't look at prophecy that way. They said if a prophet uttered anything that wasn't fulfilled in, to the, in the generation to which it was uttered, that was a false prophet. The dispensationalists are looking at this saying, okay, there are some things that we see that don't look like they were fulfilled, but so they're going to be fulfilled in the end times. And so all of this is needed to be able to apply these prophetic scriptures that were uttered to Israel to the church, first of all, and secondly, to us two to 4,000 years later and counting. And so this is a, a very specific way of looking at our faith and looking at our theology that has given rise to an interpretation of these particular books. Primarily, it's going to be the book of Revelation, the last book of the, of the Bible in the New Testament, but also the books of Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament, and then 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and other places where scriptures have been cobbled together to look at what this end-time scenario is going to actually be. Now, if you're a dispensationalist and you're looking at an end-time sequence in this way, then you're probably also a pre-tribulationist and a pre-millennialist. Oh my gosh, what does all this mean? You know? I want to just give you just enough, hopefully, that's not going to be too much. What's a pre-tribulationalist? You've heard of the rapture? Okay, where does the rapture occur in, in terms of the tribulation, which is a seven-year period of absolute cataclysmic events on the earth? Does the rapture happen before that, in the middle of that, or at the end of that? So you've got pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Most dispensationalists that have this classic interpretation are pre-trib. That means the church is going to be pulled out. Those faithful are going to be pulled out, raptured into the clouds with, with God before this tribulation started. And a premillennialist, there is a thousand-year millennium that is predicted in the book of Revelation. And when does Jesus come back? Does he come back before, during, or after? And classic dispensationalists usually are premillennialists, so Jesus comes back before. So if you have all those things in place, and you see how many things, prerequisites, there's got to be to have in place, then there is a basic sequence that goes kind of like this. First of all, conditions have to be met in order for the end time sequence to begin. One of them was that Israel had to be called back together again as a nation. Well, that happened in 1948. So we're good there. You know, we got, we got the, the nation of Israel established. But the second thing is that the temple is supposed to be standing. Now, there is some controversy here. Some look at the, the, the temple as being spiritual and not necessarily physical. But most look at it as a physical temple that has now reintroduced the whole temple system with animal sacrifice and the whole deal. Some of you asked me about the red heifer that was sent to Israel from Texas, or several of them were sent. That's part of this process of reestablishing animal sacrifice, but there's no temple yet. And it's kind of unimaginable that the temple could be built anytime soon with the Dome of the Rock standing on that spot and the other political realities of the, of the Middle East. So 
the temple should be standing. Israel needs to be established. When all that's in place, then the next sequence of events would be the rapture, where the church that is believing and is strong needs to be pulled out so that the Antichrist can take his place in the world. The Antichrist usually is seen as a charismatic figure who will offer the world all sorts of solutions that we can't find on our own. Who wouldn't want someone to ride in on a horse right now and start to fix the problems that we're seeing in our world? And so this person supposedly is going to do this, but he's got this hidden agenda, and of course he's coming from the wrong side. His entrance onto the scene, along with a religious leader who will create a one-world system that is both secular and religious, will introduce the tribulation, which either starts with a war on Israel from northern and eastern armies that coalesce to make war on Israel, or that war happens after the tribulation starts. God miraculously intervenes. Israel is victorious in that war. Usually it's called Gog and Magog, for any of you who are studying these things. And as the tribulation wears on after this war, it, we move into a series of natural disasters and pestilences that just, re, you know, just reduce the world's population by a third at a time. And so the world's population is absolutely bottlenecked during this seven-year um, tribulation period. After which, Jesus returns, and then we have this battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is the forces led by Jesus against the forces led by the Antichrist. And of course, Jesus' forces win and the Antichrist is, is uh, defeated and thrown into the pit with Satan, the, the uh, Abusos. And at that point, a millennial reign begins of a thousand years with Jesus actually at the throne over this idyllic kingdom. But it's not perfect. There's still problems with it. After a thousand years, Satan is loosed from the abyss, and there's one final battle after which he is put away forever, and God creates a new creation, and there's the beautiful image of the new Jerusalem descending from the heavens and, uh, and creating this new creation. That's quite a story. I don't know how many of you had never heard that before, or is that, is that new for you? Or Okay, so most of you are at least familiar with it. That's great. Now the question is, is that true? Have we got it right? Is this what is going to happen at some point in our future? Maybe our near future, maybe a farther future. And the truth is that we can't know. There's no way we can know if any one specific interpretation of scripture, especially prophetic and ap uh, apocalyptic scriptures are absolutely true. Now, Christians throughout Christendom, all three branches, whether it's Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, believe that Jesus is coming again, that there will be a second coming of Jesus. But this particular scenario belongs to a small subset of one branch of Christianity. These dispensationalists who are also usually evangelicals, but you know, it's a, it's a subset of the Protestant branch. Catholics don't believe this way. Eastern Orthodox don't believe this way, so it's one branch. doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we need to take a look at the breadth of Christendom and see what it is and where this belief system and this sequence actually lies. So whatever we end up believing, whatever we believe about this end-time sequence, can we know when it is going to occur? Now, Jesus' followers thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetimes, and the scriptures are written along those lines. When you read Paul, you see him talking about the shortness of the time. 
But the end of the world and Jesus' return in this sequence, however it was understood, has been predicted since the earliest days of Christianity and all throughout the 2,000 years that we have existed and history has has accrued since the crucifixion. In 500, there were three church fathers who predicted the end of the of the world and this this end time sequence and Jesus coming back. And one of them was based on the proportions of the ark, believe it or not, Noah's ark. Um, in, in 1000, Pope Sylvester uh, predicted the end of the world a thousand years after Jesus' birth. And then when that didn't happen, then they kicked it to 1033, a thousand years after his death, thinking that was the right, the right number. Um, John Wesley, the beginning of the, uh, the founder of the holiness movement and Methodism, right? He predicted the end of the world in 1836. And um, William Miller, this is a, a important one, the Millerites and William Miller, he predicted the end of the world on October 22nd, 1844. And this was a movement that really believed that the end was coming. They sold their houses. They sold all their items. They divested themselves of all their property. They went to a field on top of a hill and waited. And it's called the Great Disappointment because nothing happened. All right? But even so, the, 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 the group that was following William Miller Recoalesced into the Adventists and eventually the Seventh-day Adventists who are still looking for Jesus' advent, the second coming, and still and had several other predictions later on in time. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, George Taze Russell um, predicted in 1874 and then again in 1914. Joseph Smith of the uh, Mormons and Latter-day Saints predicted in 1891. Chuck Smith of uh, Calvary Chapel predicted the end of the world in 1981. Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, right? 1988. And Jerry Falwell, he gave himself a spread between 1999 and 2009, a 10-year spread. And Gene Dixon is uh, a late one whom you may have heard of, predicted the end of the world in 2020. All these predictions, none of them are happening. Can we know? Can we know when the end will come? Can we know when this will happen and what will happen? This is what people reading the scriptures generally have been able to glean and they make their best guess. But I want to tell you what Jesus said about this. If we take a look at, well, I don't know if you can put it up there. It's Mark 13, 1 through 4, John. It's not on the sheets. This is what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is in the Mount of Olives, and um, he's talking to his disciples. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And they're looking back at the Temple Mount, and they're looking at the temple itself, which was a magnificent structure by any account. What magnificent stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus says to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew are questioning him privately. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the signs when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Obvious question. Anybody would want to know, right? You're looking at this magnificent structure that is the heartbeat in the center of Israel. And he says it's going to be torn down. When is this going to happen? How are we going to know the signs? 
Now, clearly, the context of this passage is about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 CE, 70 AD by the Romans, 40 years later, basically. And yet, when the dispensationalists look at this passage, they're what are called futurists, and they're going to see this as something that is going to be pushed out into our future, and we're still waiting for that to happen. There are also those called preterists, from the Latin word for past. They believe that everything in Scripture, if it was a true prophecy, foretelling has already been fulfilled in the generation to which it was uttered. And so they wouldn't be looking at this passage as having any future content. And then there are those called idealists who will take this and look at it from a spiritual point of view, from a metaphorical point of view, and not from a literal point of view. So once again, all of this is controversial. But again, however we believe about prophecy itself and Jesus' prophetic utterances here, Look what Jesus does in the next paragraph that I have here. This is after he describes all the cataclysmic events that are going to happen to Jerusalem in that horrible Roman-Jewish war from 66 to 70. But he concludes this way at verse 28, still Mark 13. He says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And they didn't. It was only 40 years later. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, talking about himself, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Pretty blatant and flat out to me. He's saying he doesn't even know. Only the Father knows. Now he's making a direct reference to the Hebrew wedding ceremony right now, but we're going to get to that in a second. But listen to what he says. No, we can know maybe the general time frame. We can start to know when signs are coming. I mean, we can look at the, just the threads of, of the world and current events right now and say, hey, this thing is coming to some kind of impasse, right? We can see that happening. But we don't know the hour. We don't know the day. In other words, there is no certainty, and we want certainty. The more frightened we get, the more certainty we want. We crave it, and we will look for it. We will imagine that we have found it in any way that we can, just to alleviate the pain, the suffering, the anxiety. And when you take uncertainty and you add them to terrifying images and <laughs> images and, and cataclysms, then all of that, plus the fear that you have, can really put you over the top into some anxiety. I wanted to read an article that I found just to put a finer point on this. It's called Rapture Anxiety. Right? It starts this way. The house was empty. Where is everyone, I thought. I was nine years old and had just returned home from school. We lived in a quiet town and my parents were rarely away. Mom, I called out, nothing. I began to feel anxious. It occurred to me that my parents may have been raptured, taken up suddenly into the heavens by Jesus. Was I left behind? But I knew that my urgent prayer to Jesus at the age of five had saved me once and for all. 
If my parents were raptured, the tribulation was now beginning, beginning, and seven years of horrific trials would follow. And I was all alone. And Carl, is that you? (laughs) My mother came through the door. She had been visiting the neighbor. My anxiety about the rapture evaporated for a while. Now, I could be wrong, but I remember Bob telling me a story just like this. I don't know. Not if it's okay. Okay. You know, he was raised in Scotland, of course, the home of John Nelson Darby. He was raised in this tradition. And he had a moment like that where he found himself at home or he'd just woken up. I can't remember exactly. And had that same kind of start. Am I left behind? The writer continues... A dozen, wait, uh, the rise of rapture anxiety. I'd never heard the term rapture anxiety until I read a September 27th CNN article titled, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. The author begins with the testimony of an ex-evangelical named April Ajoy, who had experienced religious trauma because of the fear and stress caused by belief in the rapture and being left behind or being, and or being killed during the post-apocalyptic time of tribulation. The article quotes a former Baptist preacher and religious scholar who has since abandoned Christianity who writes, this is a real thing. It's a chronic problem. This is a new area of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma leads to an increase of anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors. I need to say this prayer of salvation so many times, or I need to confess my sins so often. A latent fear of an impending inevitable end, the article states, is common among communities of religious trauma survivors. There are accusations of fear tactics, propaganda, emotional coercion, and so on and so forth. But the idea that there is real anxiety here, that these beliefs and the uncertainty that we can't overcome because we can't really know for sure, is causing these problems, is causing these difficulties. As I said, it's impossible to know if any one specific interpretation is right. But we can know this. If any interpretation of scripture causes us to live in fear, it's wrong. It's a wrong interpretation. Everything about Jesus, everything about Yahweh God, everything about scripture tells us not to fear over and over again. Do not fear. Do not fear. I've overcome the world. You don't need to worry about things. So if your interpretation of scripture, wherever it lands, causes you to live in fear, it's wrong. Wherever you are. That's the bottom line, and that's something that we really need to to take a look at. Because most people that I know that are really involved in end times thought and study have a bunker mentality. They're afraid about what's coming and they're trying to prepare for it and they're trying to figure out ways to be able to survive it. And it's not a fullness of this eternal now that we've been talking about so much here at The Effect. We are obsessively focused on what? Right? We want specifics. We want certainty. We want that so badly as some sort of hedge against the unknowns of life. But the truth of the matter is God isn't giving us any what's. Never has, never really will. What God gives us is how. Not what, but how. He's giving us the glimpse of a quality of life that is possible for us right now. The glimpse of a quality of action 
in faith that is possible for us right now in the presence of doubt, in the presence of uncertainty and unknown. Any interpretation that we have of these books, especially these prophetic and apocalyptic books, should be funneling us toward God's how. How it is that we live with a sense of hope and a sense of gratitude in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Now this is all mirrored in the purpose of prophetic and apocalyptic literature, which is highly figurative, highly even allegorical and metaphorical, just because of the nature of the books themselves. Now in both genres, the prophet is speaking for God. The prophet is telling the people what God wants them to know, guiding them, encouraging them on how to live. Now the foretelling that is done, the prophecies that are done, are just incidental to the actual purpose, which is to bring out God's word to the people so that they know what's going on. Now prophetic books, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, occur before a cataclysmic event is about to happen to the people. All right? And the purpose of the prophet is to warn the people, to correct them, to cause them to want to repent, to change directions so that they can avert the disaster. Basically, you're heading off a cliff. Stop, change directions, and you won't go off the cliff. That's what the prophet is trying to do. How you should live so that you can live in concert with God's Spirit and avoid the cataclysmic event. And it's also supposed to happen in the life of the present generation. Apocalyptic books, these are books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, they occur after the cataclysmic event has already happened. The people didn't listen to the prophet. They went off the cliff. They're standing in the smoking crater that used to be their life and their home and their culture. Now the question is, how do you continue to live believing that God's promises are still going to be there for you, that God's presence is still there for you, that God himself is still there. How to encourage a people, encourage patience in them, to encourage trust in God's promises, in the restoration that God promises, in the midst of this smoking crater. Most apocalyptic books are saying that even if God has to intervene directly into human history, it's going to happen. When you can't see any way that it can possibly happen, it can still happen. But then again, all of this information, especially in apocalyptic books, because now there is usually an occupying force, an oppressor, right? It's written in highly coded language, symbolic language that nobody will understand except those who are initiated into their system. And that's on purpose. The prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, fall either before or after the fall of Israel in the 8th century and the fall of Judah in the 6th century. The Olivet Discourse, First and Second, uh, First Thessalonians, First Corinthians, Revelation, they fall before and after the First and Second Jewish-Roman Wars in 70 and then again in 135. And so you see how these fall out. The prophetic books, the apocalyptic books, before and after these major cataclysms in Israel's history. And they are telling us how do we live to avoid the disaster? And then how do we live in the midst of the disaster? How do we live? 
How do we live in trust? How do we live in hope? How do we live in gratitude and God's presence regardless of our circumstances? It's all about how. Not the what that we so desperately want. The details that are given are used to illustrate the how of living in presence and how to live without fear, how to live in love, and of course always pointing toward love. Now there's one overarching metaphor that is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe this how that I'm talking about and the nature of human experience and life. And this is the Jewish wedding tradition. And it seems a little strange to be bringing a wedding tradition into a discussion on end times and apocalyptic books, but it's all there. And I'm hoping that we'll see that in a few minutes here. Now, thinking about the wedding tradition, first of all, you have to understand what a big deal it was in a community. It was a major event in the community. They didn't have entertainment the way we understand entertainment. You couldn't get a ticket to Disneyland. But they had these week-long celebrations, and they were a week long. They were seven days long, where everybody and their brother was partying and celebrating. It was an excuse for the whole community to come together. And it was huge in connecting the communities and what this is all about. And because of this, it was intimately familiar to everyone that Jesus would have been talking about. They knew this scenario. They knew this custom and this tradition backward and forward because they've been living it all their lives. And it's used as a metaphor for human life. Israel was understood as the bride of Yahweh. And as the bride, Israel had a certain way and how of living life waiting for the groom, Yahweh, to come back. The church was understood as a bride of Christ. Same thing. Now, in the Jewish wedding ceremony itself, there are two parts. Now, in modern Jewish ceremonies, they've been put together into one ceremony similar to what we have. But in the ancient times, there were two distinct parts. And first of all, most of the marriages were arranged. The, the bride was usually 12 or 13. You know, As soon as she could bear children, she was being promised for marriage. And the father was usually the shadkan, which is the matchmaker right, in, in Hebrew, the one who would arrange the marriage. And then when the marriage was arranged and the father of the bride and the father of the groom had agreed, then the father of the groom would send his son to the bride's home and bringing certain things with him. This is called the kedushin. This is called the betrothal. And a betrothal in, in, uh, in this system was as good as a marriage. Even though you didn't consummate the marriage, you still would need a get of divorce in order to dissolve it at that point, as soon as it was betrothed. So the kedushin is this first part. The nisuin is the second part, the actual marriage ceremony itself. When the father sends the groom to the bride for the kedushin, he comes with a contract, he comes with wine, he comes with gifts, he comes with things that he brings with him. This contract is called the ketubah. And the ketubah is a contract that was written to describe the how of their lives together. It described the, the groom's financial obligations. It described how he was going to care for the wife. And it was usually done in a very ornate fashion. Today, in Hebrew weddings, they have beautiful ketubah that are created and hung on the wall of the home. And so they still have that tradition. But this was a binding contract. This is a contract between two clans, between two households. And when he would bring it, he would read it to not only the bride, but also to the entire household. And here's where the bride at least technically had some say-so. She had to accept the ketubah. She had to accept the terms of the contract. Now, she made me in a lot of pressure to do so, 
But until she accepts, there is no betrothal, there is no caduceus. At the point that she accepts, the way they seal it is by drinking a cup of wine together called the caduceus. And the cup of wine was called, this first cup was called the cup of joy because when the, the joys of life are shared, they are doubled. But that seals the betrothal. Now it's confirmed. Secondly, what they would need to do would be to have the mohar, which is the dowry. And this actually is payment to the father's household for the loss of the labor of his daughter. You never lost your sons in an ancient culture. You gained daughters-in-law because it was the girl, the bride, that moved from her home to the home of the father of the groom. And so the, the, the groom would have to pay for the loss of her labor and make up for that loss in her house. And so he would have the mohar that has come down as a ring or a coin in modern times, but it was an actual substantial amount of money that was spelled out in the ketubah, the contract. At that point then, both the, the hatan, which is the husband, which simply means one who enters the contract, and the kala, the wife, the enclosed one, the completed one, would then take a mikvah, which is a ritual bath that they would take. It is what we understand as baptism, where they would immerse themselves fully and ceremonially into the water and come up purified and only now for each other. At that point, the, the groom would make his tenayim. His tenayim was his promise to return. And then he would leave. And he could be gone for a year to two years, in the case of some of the Old Testament uh, figures, it was up to seven years between the betrothal and the actual nisuin, the completion of the marriage. And what he would be doing in this time is raising all the money he needed to meet his financial obligations if he needed to do that. But he would also be building the hadar. The hadar was the actual dwelling place or room or mansion or add-on to the father's house where they would actually live and raise their family. He would also build a chuppah, which was a temporary tent or um, enclosure where they would have the final nisuin, the wedding ceremony, and also consummate their marriage when that time was right. The groom didn't know when he would be able to go back and claim his bride. That was up to the father. The father was the one who decided when the work was completed, completed to code and everything that he needed to do so that he could leave and go, because, you know, the boy just wants to go get his wife, right? But the father's the one who's putting the brakes on. If you're starting to double think this with me, you're starting to realize some of the passages that we just read. But when the father okays, then the groom travels with all his groomsmen, his entourage, to the town of the bride. And at the edge of town, usually in the middle of the night, by surprise, they would blow the shofar, the ram's horns, and announce that they were there. And then it was all great fun because all of the bridesmaids, a bunch of girls, 12 and 13, so you can imagine they're screaming and yelling and having a really good time, were to get their lamps, light them, run to where he was, and ceremonially light his way from where he was at the edge of town to the bride's house. And when he got there, they would take the bride and they would lift her up. That's literally what Nisuin means. It means to carry home, but it means to lift up, to raise up. And they would have what you normally see, that raised platform on poles, um, a covered chair and, or, or a couch where she would lay and they would carry her all the way back to the groom's home in the Nisuin. And there, the Hadar, this tent, that was usually open on the sides. The groom would wait, the hatan would wait for his wife, uh, symbolizing that he was there and had built this structure and was going to take care of her. 
and then she would come, there would be seven blessings, and they would drink a second cup together, the first cup that they had drunk together since the first one. And this was the cup of sacrifice. And the symbolism here is when the hardships of life are shared, they are cut in half. Just as the joys are doubled, the hardships are halved. And they would drink this cup, there would be seven blessings that would be said, and then everybody would exit the chuppah and leave the couple together and they would consummate their marriages with two, marriage with two witnesses waiting outside for the groom to emerge. Sounds a little weird, I know. <laughs> Be a witness, but don't listen. But they would... The, and the reason for this was, and this may sound like too much information, but there's a point to it. There's something called the virginity cloth. It was a cloth that was placed under the bride because the bride was supposed to be pure. Why have this space of a year to two years between the betrothal and the marriage? It's kind of a pregnancy test, if you will. If you don't have DNA, if you don't know about the way necessarily biology works, to have a space between the betrothal and the actual consummation of the marriage, if she is pregnant or if she delivers a baby, the groom knows it's not his. And that's the way that they were able to tell. On the day of the marriage, was she really a virgin? Was she really pure? If she bled onto this virginity cloth, that was the way that they would prove it. And this cloth would be taken out to the two witnesses, shown to the households. I know how this sounds. So that they could all celebrate that this was a real marriage. Now, if you think about this, if we are the bride of Christ, and we are the ones who are consummating our marriage with God, if you, if you will, we are not pure. How is it that we can be seen as pure in the eyes of the Lord? This is where Jesus puts his own blood on our virginity cloth and takes it. This is the metaphor. This is the way that the, the understanding took place. That's why all these details are so important. And after that takes place, they, have, uh, they spend seven days in the chuppah. That's their honeymoon. And everybody else parties outside. Now, these parts of the tradition are actually reflected in the apocalyptic literature. And really quickly, I just want to go through some of the passages so you can see how this ceremony is being reflected in these apocalyptic passages that are pointing toward a how, a way of living life that is reflected in this young Jewish bride. When we talk about the Kedushan, the father sending his son to betroth the bride, he brings the ketubah. He brings the marriage contract. There are two witnesses that, that signed this. Look at Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This and all of Jesus' teaching is seen as the reading of the ketubah of, by Jesus, the groom, to his followers, to his bride, to his people. In the Old Testament, they understood Moses' reading of the Torah as the reading of the Ketubah to the Jewish people. So here's the same thing. Jesus is reading the terms of the way that we will live together with him by reading this Ketubah. The Kedush, the first cup that is drunk if we accept the, the, the Ketubah, that seals the betrothal. But there's no second cup that is drunk until the actual consummation of the marriage. Matthew 26, starting at verse 27, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, this is at the Last Supper, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, 
I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is pointing forward to the consummation and the second cup that will be drunk in the Jewish wedding ceremony. Then there's the mohar, right? The, the dowry, the price that is paid. And of course, that is understood as Jesus' own life. That was the ransom. That was the price that is paid that is spoken of over and over in the Gospels. Then there's a the tenayim, the promise to return as Jesus is leaving. And this is the day before the crucifixion at John 14, verse 1. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, which could be translated mansions, and sometimes is. But he's referring to the Hadar. In my Father's dwelling place, there are many Hadar. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, right? Just like the groom would do. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Beautiful rendition that they would understand because they knew how the ceremony went. He goes to prepare the chuppah. He goes to prepare the chadar. And there's this period of waiting or preparation on the part of the bride, on our part, right? Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Because the Father is the one that okayed the Son to go and claim his bride. In the meantime, he is preparing the place. At Matthew 25, verse 1, this is the story and the parable of the ten foolish virgins. But look how it lines up with what you know now about the wedding ceremony. He said, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Right? This is when the shofar has been blown at the edge of town and they're running out to meet him with their lamps. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's a metaphor. We are supposed to be ready. We are supposed to be watchful. We are supposed to be living a certain how that allows us to be able to see when the groom is here. The groom returns with a shout, with the trumpet blast of the shofar. There also is the lighting of the lamps, lapidim, the lightning. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a combination of the blasting of the shofar and the raising up of the nisuin, you see. And this is a classic passage that was used to prove, as a proof text, for the rapture. Matthew 24.27 
For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so the lightning is as if it were the lamps of the bridesmaids lighting the way for him to come to us with this trumpet blowing. The snatching of the bride in the middle of the night to be caught up. The word there in Latin is raptus, to caught up. You know, a raptor is a bird of prey. They snatch. That's the idea there of the rapture is to be caught up, pulled up. First Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain we who are alive and remain will be caught up together, raptus, right? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Matthew twenty four thirty seven. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. All of these are references to the groom returning with a shout, with the trumpet blast, and then to be caught up onto the Nisuin. That idea of readiness, that idea of living this how that is so important to presence so that we will know the hour of our visitation and not miss it. And then the Nisuin, the actual raising up and the journey to the chuppah, John six forty three. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Revelation 20 talks about the raising up of the dead to new life. And then finally, entering the chuppah, entering the hadar, the, the mansions in the Father's home. Revelation 21, 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This idea of the tabernacle of God being among men is the hadar, is the dwelling place that we can enter, the chuppah that we can enter. Revelation 21, now verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now, through all of the difficult passages and chapters of Revelation, it ends on this note with this amazing image of the city, new city of Jerusalem, descending and taking residence here among earth us being able to go into the mansion, go into our dwelling place with God where there's not going to be any more pain or suffering. This is the hope that is trying to be conveyed to a people who are standing in the smoking crater of their city and their temple 
who don't see how possibly anything could be left for them anymore, that God has finally turned his back on them and will not carry them any further. And yet this is the encouragement. Yes, it's going to happen. It's still going to happen. And your experience with the wedding ceremony of that waiting for it to happen, of the Jewish bride waiting for her groom to reappear, is the how. How we transcend, how we bridge the gap between those two. These passages all evoke this marriage tradition, what it meant to them, how it was experienced by the people in their lifetime. It evokes the how of living here between the Kedushan and the Nisuin, because that's what we're doing. We here on earth are living between the betrothal and the completion. Now, it's not going to be important to remember all these passages. You're not going to. I went through them so quickly. But I hope what it does is it can show you that there is a pattern here. There is a metaphor that's being used to try to evoke an understanding among the people that comes kind of from the inside out and the bottom up, right out of their own experience of what it feels like to be in the marriages that they were in, to have gone through their experience of being a bride and a groom, their experience of celebrating marriages with their friends and their family throughout their villages and their towns, to describe the how and the nature of human experience in life. All of this, Israel, the bride of Yahweh, the church, the bride of Christ, Jesus as the groom, all of human history, all of life is lived between the Kedushin, the betrothal, and the Nisuin, the consummation. It's all lived between heaven and earth, the same idea. Earth being the place of the Kedushin, heaven being the place of the Nisuin that we are carried up and raised up. How are we to live in this in-betweenness? How are we supposed to do that? Exactly as a Jewish bride does it. In that period that she is waiting for her groom to return, already spoken for, already married, but living a life of anticipation and a balance of that anticipation with the awareness of where she is right now, with the presence to her family right now. It's a balance between the now and the not yet. To be able to continue to work toward the not yet, but never at the expense of the now. To realize when that not yet comes to pass, this now, I won't know anymore. This family, that is all I know and I've grown up with, will not be my family anymore. I'll have my own family. And that fulfills my purpose. That's a beautiful thing. It's an exciting thing, but it's also a bittersweet thing to leave these people that if I'm far enough away, I will not be able to see on any kind of regular basis, if at all. The balance between now and not yet, between what can be controlled and what can't be controlled. We can't make the groom come any quicker. The groom will come when the Father says he can come, and nobody knows that time, that day, that hour. How do we live our lives richly, beautifully, with hope and with presence? It's being put right in the middle of the tragic gap again, right? Between the way things are and the way we think they should be. We talked about that. So despite the horrific imagery of the apocalyptic books, between some of the horrific life experience that we've all had, 
can we still find hope and encouragement and trust? Can we find hope and trust in a change of direction, in the fulfillment of God's promise and the return to unity? Jesus told his disciples, who asks of the end times, that only the Father knows. What he was doing was reminding them of their status as brides. This is how it feels. This is how it works. You can't ask when. You can only live now and live the how. So the question we should ask ourselves is why are we still asking when, right? Because of the fear, because of the uncertainty, because of our intolerance of uncertainty, we still want to know. But the answer remains unchanged from Jesus. There is no what. There is only a how that you're going to get. And any view of the end times of these books that we're talking about that are focused on when are doomed to failure. Because only a timeless how, only a timeless now is going to be conveyed back to us from our God. And any view of end times that causes worry or fear or judgment has already failed because it's missed the point. Now, I don't know what the end times are going to look like, and I certainly don't know when, but I'm in good company because nobody else does either. And anybody who tells you something different is selling something. All right? Nobody knows. Jesus told us that without any equivocation. Furthermore, at this point in my life, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care about the when. I don't care if I've got these particular verses right or not. The what and the when is not important to me anymore. Only this how that we're talking about. The how. How do I live in hope and trust until I die? Or until I'm raptured, if that's true? Maybe it is. I don't know. It doesn't matter. This moment matters. This how matters. Now, if you didn't hear anything else from this message, right, that that I've been talking about, at least hear this. As scary as the world is turning out to be, as scary as Scripture can be when we read these books, if we're afraid of God, then we don't know God yet. We haven't learned how to trust God yet. Because if God is who Jesus says he is, then we needn't worry. There's nothing to worry about. And if God is not who Jesus says he is, then we shouldn't be following him. And we needn't worry. There's nothing to worry about. We don't need to be afraid of a God who is not God. And a God who can't love as Jesus loved is not God. We don't need to be afraid of a God who is love. Bottom line, we don't need to be afraid. That's what it all comes down to. That's what the scriptures are trying to tell us in as stark and graphic a way as possible. We don't need to be afraid. And if you're saying, well, I'm not really afraid of God, it's the world that I'm afraid of. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. In that case, spend more time in silence and solitude. Spend more time in God's presence, and you will find out that you still don't need to be afraid. Because in that God who has overcome the world, we can find our rest still. 
And when you do that, you'll find that also, finally, you really do understand the end times books and what they all mean and how we can live this life, not changing the circumstances, but find our hope and find our trust and find our joy just as a young Jewish girl could find hers waiting for her groom to return. Let's pray. Father, these are frightening times. We are seeing signs and seasons. We are seeing things on the horizon. And we are seeing that things can't continue as they are for very much longer. And that's frightening, of course. But help us to spend the time with you that we need to understand that we don't need to be afraid. Even if times get difficult, ultimately everything will be right with you. Everything will be okay. That all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to find out how we love you, how we are called according to your purpose, so we can build the conviction that we need not to live in fear, even as things continue to go sideways. And again, Father, thank you for everything that you've given us. Help us to be wise about the way we use the tools that you've given us so that we can find you in the final mix. We thank you for your love and your constancy, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.